welcome to the session on uh, human trafficking. Uh, we are looking today uh, at community-based prevention strategies uh, for human trafficking. Uh, my name is Anil Cheryan. I come from India. I work, uh, I'm a medical doctor and pediatrician by training. Uh, and about 15 years ago, I saw the light and I moved into community health and uh, development. And uh, so, uh, in a way, it's a, a mismatch in the sense that a, a physician should be sitting here and talking about uh, human trafficking. But I think uh, it's, it's a reflection of uh, the magnitude and enormity and the importance of addressing this uh, problem. Uh, so today, uh, in this session, I'm hoping that uh, all of you will learn about the magnitude uh, of the human trafficking problem in developing countries. Uh, I realize that uh, previous session also was on human trafficking, and some of you may be staying over from the previous session. So you already have some insight, but uh, I will be also uh, talking and impressing on you the importance of this problem. Uh, also to encourage each of you to explore and understand some of the root causes, uh, or underlying causes, and to help you to understand uh, what prevention beyond advocacy, rescue, and rehabilitation. Now, uh, why am I emphasizing the importance of going beyond rescue and rehabilitation? Uh, our experience has been that in most countries like India or even other Southeast uh, Asian countries, most Christian agencies focus largely on uh, what they call restoration or rehabilitation of trafficked victims. There is also a glamour associated with rescue. Uh, but there is very little being done uh, regarding prevention. And that's why uh, in today's session I, I want to impress on you that it's important to take up prevention strategies. And I would like to share some of the community-based approaches and good practices uh, in preventing human trafficking uh, from our organizational experience. I work for the Emmanuel Hospital Association, which is a Christian uh, uh, health care NGO based in India and uh, so through this presentation I'll uh, share with you some of the, our experiences. So a uh, quick outline of today's presentation. Uh, we are first asking the question, what is human trafficking? Uh, I'm going to talk a little bit of the problem of child trafficking uh, in India uh, and then what is happening Right? Why is it happening? Why is human trafficking happening in countries like India or other developing countries? Uh, and then we look at some general strategies to combat trafficking. And then, uh, more specifically, at prevention of trafficking, how, how is it done? Or how should it be done? And uh, I will talk about our experience in Emmanuel Hospital Association. And uh, we'll try to talk about some of the good practices in community-based prevention trafficking. So what is human trafficking? Uh, put very simply, uh, human trafficking refers to sale of adults and children uh, into commercial sexual activities or bonded labor. Uh, the more formal definition uh, given by the UN is it's about recruiting, transporting, harboring persons uh, using threat, force or deception uh, for the purpose of exploitation. So it is all about exploiting human beings. And uh, the forms of trafficking generally uh, are referred to as labor trafficking, trafficking uh, for labor and sex trafficking. And human trafficking has been referred to by many as modern-day slavery. It is the second largest criminal industry uh, after drug industry. Some people say if you include the arms industry, it would still uh, be two or three. And uh, 
This is a conservative estimate that there are about 12.3 million adults and children currently in forced labor, bonded labor, or forced prostitution. Uh, three people out of every thousand people in Asia are victims of trafficking. And uh, women make about 56% of the trafficked adults and children. But there are other estimates. So in reality, uh, if you talk about uh, enslavement and modern-day slavery, there are estimates that it's something between 10 or 30 million. Uh, there is an organization which is trying to uh, look at this, and it's called the Global Slavery Index. How many of you have seen the uh, index, Global Slavery Index? It's on the website. And uh, they estimate that there are about 29.8 million modern-day slaves globally. And uh, yeah, this is the website, and uh, so you can Google it and you can find it. And they keep updating the statistics. Now, there are some people who critique it because it all defines, it depends on how you define slavery and what is slavery. But it doesn't, uh, you know, distract from the point that it's a huge, huge problem. Uh, the 76% of the enslaved people come from 10 countries. And uh, the list is up there. And you can see India is uh, right up on the top uh, in terms of... Uh, uh, slavery or trafficking. But it's largely uh, uh, e uh, Asian countries, including East Asian countries. And uh, Africa is in some countries, especially Nigeria and uh, DRC. And uh, it's coming up in many, many countries. Some of this information only uh, reflects the lack of knowledge or that we are just touching the iceberg. Now, child trafficking in India, uh, I just want to give you some s stories of, that we have come across. And one is, uh, the name is, names have been changed in this presentation. Lakshmi uh, is a five-year-old girl from Dibrugar in Assam in India. And she was sold by a family uh, as a domestic help for about $300. Uh, now, She's about eight years old. And uh, we came to learn about her because one night she was badly beaten, brutally beaten, in fact. And uh, her neighbors informed one of the NGOs, uh, and they went to the child, uh, district child welfare committee, and then she was rescued and returned home. But uh, just want to impress, the early child trafficking actually starts at an extremely early age. Uh, there are four and five children, four and five. And this is another sort of example. Uh, say, Rina, another six-year-old girl. Uh, this is from a family. Uh, already the parents themselves were bonded laborers working in a tea garden in Assam. And uh, they had five siblings. And one of their neighbors, one of part, part of their community, promised that uh, she would take uh, Rina with her to the city and uh, make sure that she gets a good home and employment and education and uh, that she would send money back home. But six months later when the parents kept asking what happened to their daughter, then she said, oh, she ran away from home, she's missing, I don't really know where she is. So uh, this is what, just to give you a glimpse of what child labor is, Essentially, uh, most of it is for forced child labor. Uh, they are also uh, taken for uh, begging in the streets. Many cities in India, if you are driving through and stop at the traffic light, you'll find children coming and begging. Uh, they're even used for uh, involuntary organ uh, donors. So many of them will go and then they come back with a kidney missing. And uh, so this is also a huge a problem. So, uh, problem of child trafficking in India. India is the source, destination, and transit country for trafficking of people, including girls. And in uh, 2006, there was a study done across India, and it found that nearly uh, more than uh, 65 to 70 percent 
of the districts in India uh, have been affected by trafficking. Uh, this is to tell you that it's not certain hotspots or certain areas. It is actually quite extensively and quite rampant. Uh, this was, uh, you know, we just saw it very, very late. In fact, when we first started getting into this whole problem of child trafficking, uh, when I talked with many of uh, my community health and development staff, they said, no, it's not a problem in our area. It may be a problem somewhere else. But after a little bit of training and education, suddenly they said, they came back and said, oh, no, it's happening right in front of us, right in our neighborhoods. And uh, we, we never saw it because they were not looking for it. And uh, But 99% of the trafficking is internal in the sense that it happens, the destina final destination is within India itself. And uh, as I sh briefly showed you, they exploited in many ways. They're used in factories as cheap labor, food industry, uh, domestic servants, beggars. For example, the fireworks industry, matchbox industry. Many industries, even like the carpet industry, uh, use child labor, uh, illegal organ donation. And uh, boys are primarily exploited for labor. Girls also are exploited for labor, but they become very uh, vulnerable uh, to sexual exploitation. And also some of them are uh, sent, uh, sold into prostitution. Uh, why, why is this happening? Why is, why is trafficking grown? Uh, yes, definitely underlying one of the main causes is abject poverty and marginalization uh, that is happening. And uh, on uh, the first day we had a breakout session helping to talk about poverty and what's understanding. We're not just talking about low incomes or material poverty, but poverty in, in a broader context. Uh, there is inadequate opportunities for decent uh, labor uh, where they live. There's rampant migration. Uh, most of the countries which are in transition, developing countries, uh, one phenomenon is migration. People are always moving out of their communities, moving to cities, moving to different towns, uh, looking for better employment opportunities. And trafficking is actually sort of very closely linked with this and sometimes very difficult to differentiate because you might get a better salary, there are more uh, livelihood options and people are constantly moving. So right embedded in this is the whole problem of uh, trafficking. Lack of access to education and poor quality of education uh, gender discrimination and gender-based violence in the homes, uh, child abuse, and just that children are sometimes totally undervalued. But there are also other broader political and social instabilities. For example, there are armed uh, conflicts, insurgency uh, movements going on in many of these regions. And uh, these provide you know, the right environment for trafficking. And it must be, mustn't be forgotten that it's very profitable. It's a huge, huge, I talked about it as the second largest industry. It means there are huge amounts of profits and money involved with this. And at a relatively low risk. We all know that, you know, for example, uh, drug trade is a very risky problem. Whereas when you look at human trafficking and compare it to drug trade, there is hardly any risk in human trafficking and the profits are huge. Uh, the trafficking industry itself employs a whole large number of people. So when you have a very poor nation, a lot of people looking for employment and for a, a reasonable income, trafficking provides livelihood options. It is a criminal activity and very often many of our countries don't have the appropriate legal framework. And... Uh, I just want to uh, stress that it's very—it's a very sophisticated, that's what we have learned, it's a very sophisticated operation. It's a huge, well-organized, and uh, that we hardly knew much about it. There's an overall lack of awareness about trafficking. But there is another level at which you can look at, uh, answer the question, why is it happening? And uh, I've just 
proposing two ideas, but there may be many more, and it's not comprehensive. Uh, for example, dehumanization impact, poverty itself results in that sort of dehumanization. Uh, we all created in the image of God, uh, in God's, uh, and that's the key, our personhood is being key. But what poverty really does is not just that you lack material, but it dehumanizes you. It devalues the fact that you are, people are created in the image of God. And the resulting is chronic deprivation and marginalization. Uh, also, uh, it reduces people, especially children, into commodities. And, you know, very strong com communities, indigenous communities, which were involved in barter and uh, non-monetary forms of economies, uh, when they transit into a monetary economy, suddenly everything is reduced into people, even people have become commodities to be sold. We uh, did some research to look at some of the underlying factors. Uh, two studies were done, both in Assam. One uh, we call the missing children of Assam uh, in 2012 and child labor in Assam. And I just want to share with you some of uh, what we discovered. Uh, in, in Assam, at least uh, in the areas that we studied, it was pre predominantly uh, trafficking for labor. 65% were boys and 35% girls. Right? Uh, just to emphasize once again that most often when we talk of trafficking, we think it's uh, women who are trafficked. But uh, there is a significant proportion of boys who also trafficked. And some of the vulnerability uh, factors that we identified were that most uh, of the children who went missing were from poor, marginalized, uh, and or tribal, this is the indigenous group, Adivasi, as it's called in India. And they themselves, many of them were, uh, you know, forced, bonded laborers. So already there was a form of uh, slavery that was existing and that just led to a further magnification of the problem. Uh, most of them, uh, these children were school dropouts. The average age of schooling or the average period that they spent in school was 2.78 years. Uh, trafficking began at a very early age. Uh, you know, when we initially went, we thought it would be maybe teenagers or 10 or 15. But many of them were, you know, five years, six years old. Most of the children came, not most, many of them, 20% came from uh, single parent families. So either the one of the parents was dead uh, due to disease or uh, some of them, had, father had migrated to the city and never returned. Uh, so they were more vulnerable to trafficking. Another sort of case study is from another region in India called Jharkhand, which is predominantly a tribal community. And they estimated that every year there are 200 girls who are trafficked uh, to the big cities in India. Uh, but then the background is this is a community which has been marginalized systemically over uh, many years. They have very low literacy, uh, limited livelihood options. Uh, you know, their own, many of them were initially dependent on the forest and uh, suddenly the forest disappearing, they have been pushed into agriculture. Uh, they don't really know, understand uh, business or marketing. Uh, and these girls uh, end up as domestic servants in rich and middle class homes uh, in cities. Now, while they primarily use these domestic uh, servants, uh, they are paid extremely low wages uh, and there's hardly any opportunity for schooling or uh, any kind of recreation or anything else. Many of them, uh, incidentally, there was a huge Christian movement many years. So many of them come from Christian uh, church backgrounds. But when they go to the cities, they don't have any opportunity for uh, worship or uh, are not linked to any church. Uh, some of them are sold uh, into brothels for commercial sex. I just want to give you two uh, uh, sort of stories. Just, it's one story actually about two girls. 
uh, Reena and Kavita, again the names are changed. They were close friends uh, and they uh, attended school together. Uh, they were in school and they were the closest of friends. Uh, partly because they both come from homes which are, you know, and where they were quite lonely and this friendship meant everything to them. So they would visit each other's home. Sometimes uh, Reena would stay in the other girl's home for two, three days and they would uh, stay uh, in each other's homes. And, uh, you know, they were inseparable. Uh, and this is what we learned when later on we talked to the school, their teachers and in school. In, interestingly, both of them were in school. They were not school dropouts. And uh, uh, Reena is 13 years old, single parent. Her mother died due to some illness. And her father was a laborer and alcoholic. Uh, Kavita was 10 years old. Her parents also were poor daily wage laborers. And a friend of theirs, a senior friend in the sense, uh, in the same school uh, called Jennifer, approached them and said that her mother could actually take them to the uh, city and give them uh, nice homes and a job. Uh, so they decided suddenly they were missing. Uh, but it took a long while for the families to realize that they were missing because they kept thinking, or they may have gone somewhere else to the other person's home, which they were used to. And the father probably didn't even bother to find out what had happened. A friend from their school uh, got a call uh, about three weeks later and said that uh, uh, they were in Delhi. And uh, that's all, not much, but just information that they were in Delhi. Then Kavita's parents got a call uh, asking them, to come to Ranchi to pick up their daughter. When they reached the railway station in Ranchi, they found that she was extremely sick and she died soon after. Uh, they also discovered that the other girl, Reena, also was already dead and in a hospital mortuary in Delhi. Now, uh, a police case was registered and uh, you know, finally three people Jennifer, her mother, Mary, and uh, a third person were uh, arrested. Now, uh, the reason I put the story is one is the, again, very young age. But it's not just poverty in the sense of they didn't have an income or they were not in school. It has to do a lot with underlying relationships and the environment in which they live. So when there is domestic violence, uh, abuse right in the family setting, then... Uh, you know, going to some other place actually brings hope to them. You know, they think, oh, Delhi may be much better. You know, I, here I'm sitting and struggling and suffering. Nobody cares for me in this kind of situation. So, uh, it is in that kind of context that trafficking actually happens. The other point, important point that we learn from this is that uh, very often the first people to know uh, that they have been they have trafficked or moved somewhere, are their own peers or friends. Right? Rarely the parents don't get any information, but some of their friends have information. So, the, uh, what, what are the strategies for combating uh, human trafficking? And I've tried to sort of give a simple uh, formula to understand it. Three P's and three R's. Uh, three P's being uh, protection. Uh, we need to protect uh, children and even adults right there in their home. So this would mean protecting women from uh, domestic violence and abuse right in their settings. Uh, it would mean uh, protecting them uh, in various ways uh, which makes them vulnerable, children. Uh, prosecution is to prosecute the uh, offenders and prosecute the traffickers. Uh, punishment. Uh, some of them need to be uh, punished. Uh, prevention. Uh, and promotion. And the three R's on the other side would be to redress the problem, to rehabilitate and reintegrate these children back into their homes and community. 
having said that, uh, I, as I mentioned at the right at the beginning, most uh, Christian agencies are involved with rehabilitation and reintegration. But uh, very often, uh, these people are badly affected, damaged people. Uh, rehabilitation is an extremely difficult process. It's not only about you know, social or economic rehabilitation. But deep down as people, they're badly affected. Uh, many of them, their behaviors are changed, their attitudes are changed. Uh, and uh, it takes a long, long time from them to be really restored in, in, the, in a true sense. And uh, I've talked to many of the agencies involved with this. And uh, they will tell you actually, you know, the success rate is extremely low maybe one out of ten, when you talk about complete restoration. There are some who are uh, trying different methods and have reported better sort of uh, results. But on the whole, it's a very difficult and probably often, you know, you never really are able to restore people to their fullness. Uh, promotion of, so in the sense, very little is being done in the area of prevention. Uh, what do we mean by promotion? We are talking of sensitization of different people who are involved in this, the stakeholders at the community level, right, and also in that region. Uh, and I'll tell you a little more about uh, the kind of people who are involved and whom. But promotion is, and sensitizing them to this huge problem is one of the starting points. Uh, we found that it's important to differentiate between uh, migration, what is migration and what is trafficking. Because migration being such a common problem in many areas, uh, when we went to the communities and we had started talking to them about human trafficking, they said, oh, yeah, the people have been going from this region for years. You know, it's, it's for our good. So uh, people need to be uh, taught and helped to understand that trafficking is different from uh, migration. Advocacy, community, this, I'm talking of community level advocacy, not, you know, national level or uh, advocacy on uh, regulation and prosecution and uh, legal frameworks. But I'm talking of community level advocacy, communication, and mobilizing the community towards this uh, uh, problem. Now, it's a complex problem, and so nothing much can be achieved unless you get a community endorsement. Because otherwise, communities will think that you're working against them and against their own development rather than actually trying to support or help them. So even if it takes a while, it's very important that you get the community to endorse that this is an uh, issue and that they would like to deal with it. It is a business, and one way of looking at prevention is to undermine the whole uh, business model of trafficking. Uh, I don't have much experience in this area, but it is a legitimate uh, method of prevention. And uh, what people talk about is construction of barriers for trafficking, right from the entrance when people are initially uh, smuggled or transition points, creating barriers, uh, you know, looking at uh, housing, where these people are housed and creating barriers so that there are less homes where that accommodate traffic people. Uh, identification and documentation. Uh, so you, you work on it on trying to develop, uh, break down the existing business model, looking at the financial uh, rewards to different people, financial systems. Uh, a lot more uh, research and understanding needs to be done. Uh, the other kind of prevention strategies look at reducing vulnerability and building resilience, both at individuals level and at a community level. And uh, this uses comprehensive developmental approaches. Another strategy for prevention is community surveillance and vigilance uh, resulting in early rescue. The term early rescue refers to rescuing them before they actually get out of the region that they live in. Uh, also, it's important to address sort of generic uh, societal or common societal issues, which are the underlying factors uh, like gender-based discrimination, violence, child abuse, uh, alcoholism, or other forms of substance abuse. Uh, 
because uh, these actually result in trafficking. Uh, I just also want to mention it's important to address some of the attitudinal and worldview issues uh, which underline some of this. Who are we? You know, uh, especially when you talk with young children and uh, young people, we find that addressing self-esteem, most of them have a very poor self-esteem uh, as a result of their uh, life experiences, the poverty that they go through. There's a lot of fear and hopelessness. And so, uh, as I gave you in the, ca uh, the case study, it is a lack of hope of a better life which often uh, results in trafficking. And there's also broken relationships within families, uh, parents and siblings. And so it's important that we also don't forget that restoring this relationship also is important. Very quickly about the uh, EHA uh, experience and how we have tried to translate it. Uh, we initially got interested in this uh, about five years ago. And uh, in 2008 and 9, and uh, I started getting reports from communities saying that trafficking was happening and this was an issue. Uh, we, uh, even though we are we are a health network and mainly involved in uh, on health, we realized that uh, this actually also affects health in a broader way. So we got involved in this and our experience has been about uh, three years. So it's very hard for me to say this is good practice uh, because we are still, there are good ideas, innovations. Uh, some of it we have got some immediate results and we, we think they are working. But it's only with time that we will actually know they are good practices. But uh, what I want to say is that we, when we initially started, we went looking, trying to learn from other agencies. We talked to a number of agencies. But we couldn't get much information on prevention because everyone started talking about, you know, the legal framework, how you should, you know, they were doing rescue and, you know, how the police was involved. And as an organization, we were already involved in community-based uh, health programs and development programs. And that was our strength. So we said we have to work to our strength. There are not many people in prevention and that's why we moved into uh, this whole area. Very briefly, Emmanuel Hospital Association is a faith-based Christian indigenous uh, healthcare NGO. Uh, we are involved in work in 13 states in India. Uh, we run about 20 uh, rural community hospitals and 40 community health projects. Uh, and child trafficking has been one of our programs since 2010. Uh, we have, we run actually four community-based projects uh, uh, in the state of Assam. Uh, in Jharkhand, which I mentioned, and two in the state of Bihar in North India. Uh, what we have been doing is we st first started the community sensitization mobilization using uh, community, com community communication strategies like videos, uh, posters, flip charts, and increasingly participatory methods of uh, you know, letting the community understand what the problem was. Uh, then we mobilized various community-based groups. Uh, this could even be the local uh, governance. In India, we have a system called the panchayat system. So every village will have a panchayat. So working with the panchayats, uh, working with the women's groups, uh, working with adolescent groups, uh, youth groups. Sometimes there were already political organizations working in the area. So, for example, in Assam, we started working with the Boro youth uh, groups. Uh, so it was an initial stage was mobilizing many of these people, helping them to uh, come on board and understand the problem. Then uh, we started working on community-based surveillance and vigilance. And uh, what do we mean by that? In many areas, there was no record of missing people. Uh, people didn't report it to the police. Uh, police had no idea what the problem was and people were scared about uh, information, providing information. So we started by there, by every village having a register in which they report uh, missing people. So if their child was missing for a period uh, of 
two weeks. And interestingly, in one area where they have a very strong community-based uh, governance system, the village committee took a decision. They passed a mandate that all villagers, if any person goes missing, they are expected to report within 15 days uh, and put the details in the uh, information register. Uh, then the, we started networking in the communities, including community-based groups, the, uh, local village government, police, uh, youth groups, shopkeepers, owners, uh, and asked them to start looking out for people who are, they suspect are being trafficked. Uh, so suddenly people got sensitized, they started observing somebody at the bus stand, you know, with a group of three, four girls going, and then you would get a call from uh, one of the shopkeepers saying, you know, somebody's being, we suspect there's something happening uh, at uh, different points. And so all these stakeholders, even churches, pastors, uh, church members, all started getting into this youth groups from churches, uh, started getting involved. Peer groups, uh, here we started working with the youth, young boys, girls, and we tried to get them to make packs. You know, have you heard of uh, adolescent uh, people making uh, certain packs among themselves saying that we'll all do this? So we said that we will not allow anybody to be trafficked from our circle of friends. If anybody's trafficked, we will uh, inform them, inform uh, authorities. If we get a call back, we will. So we try to get these groups to actually uh, sort of make these packs. Uh, reporting and registering with the police. People were very scared. Uh, they felt intimidated. And it's important to realize that many of the people who are agents are actually right there in the communities. They may be their relatives, family members, their neighbors. And so sometimes they feel, you know, we're betraying them. It's not only fear that, you know, somebody will call them up and do something, but they feel they're betraying their own uh, relatives and family members. So they don't report. Uh, we started uh, looking at addressing vulnerabilities at the household level. And uh, so we looked at, say, for example, single parent families. Like uh, we developed a criteria of identifying these families. So single parents, illiterate parents, where none of the adults had any education, families with no land assets or low asset index, uh, families where children are school dropouts, uh, families who had a uh, member who was disabled. Disability was makes people vulnerable, uh, both uh, in terms of poverty, but also in terms of being trafficked. Uh, then we started looking at vulnerability and addressing it uh, with the young girls and boys. So we started in, uh, in a continuum, starting with life skills education, focusing on building identity and self-esteem, uh, mutuality uh, through the groups. Then we went into vocational training and skills training. Uh, we are also now working on community colleges. Uh, we started looking at small-scale business development to provide employment for school dropouts, uh, school programs to enhance school education, and uh, also working with employment agencies, especially at trying to address migration. Because uh, if people have made a choice to migrate, can we make it safe? Uh, can they provide information, let people know that they are moving for uh, labor, uh, make sure that their conditions of employment are addressed. Uh, inclusion in all our other development, we were already working and doing other activities. So we want to make sure that we include single mothers or fathers in self-help groups that we were running. Uh, these are sort of problem-solving groups which come together to address some of the common problems. Uh, livelihood and income generation opportunities for targeted vulnerable families. So what we would do is actually we would map a village and then say there are about 40 uh, vulnerable families. And earlier we would do our programs you know, for the whole village. But this time we make sure that uh, these 40 families are included uh, in whatever program that we do. Uh, we looked at social protection for these families, uh, making sure that they were included. Uh, they had health insurance 
under the national health insurance schemes. They had food and nutritional entitlements. Uh, many, uh, gov the government provides subsidized food supplementation to people. So make sure that they are able to access these. Uh, and one important thing was networking. Very earlier we learned that trafficking is a well-planned, complex business operation. And, uh, you know, it's, it's impossible for single individual uh, people or agencies to think that they would be able to uh, address this on their own. So networking uh, at a local level and regional level is critical. Uh, and uh, so we started developing these networks with the police department, NGOs, get everyone to talk to each other, civil surgeons, churches, and other religious bodies, uh, other anti-trafficking agencies, child welfare committees, and you build a network. Uh, it's also important to address the social issues. So we have programs which are addressing gender-based violence, uh, gender sensitization, child protection. We've come out with a child protection policy that we want to educate the community with. Uh, we're trying to uh, revitalize child welfare communities and improve schooling on their whole. So this is what prevention for trafficking looks like. Uh, so what are the take-home messages? Right? Today, modern-day slavery, human trafficking is a huge problem. Uh, anywhere between 10 to 30 million people. And it's more than any time in his history. Right? Because of the nature, uh, the way uh, countries are moving, the economies are developing, the disparity, it is at its high point. Trafficking is huge and it undermines all our other community development efforts, if unaddressed. Poverty is definitely one of the reasons for that human trafficking is happening. But poverty itself needs to be understood as much broader than just material deprivation. Uh, don't forget that addressing problem, the poverty itself is not sufficient because this whole uh, trafficking business is fueled by greed and the essential exploitative nature of human beings. Uh, in uh, community health and prevention, we always use this uh, uh, description of uh, a sink which is overflowing. So, uh, do you want to be, keep mopping the water that's overflowing or do you stop the tap? If you have to stop the tap, prevention is important. It's more cost effective. And then community-based strategies on anti-trafficking are possible. Uh, the final take-home message uh, let's stop reading statistics and start changing them. Uh, Christian missions need to get involved in community-based prevention of human trafficking. So, thank you. And <laughs> I said, I think there's some time for a few questions. So, yes. Uh, right now they aren't, but I hope maybe I can give it to the organizers. And oh, yeah, sure. Yes. Yes. It's uh, www.eha-health.org. Dash. Yeah, as I was mentioning, it's about uh, three, three years since we're moving. And uh, the first step was actually getting them to endorse and accept that it's a problem and needs to be addressed. Uh, that itself was a huge uh, step. Uh, and it, I think it's critical. And so I think in terms of success, we have had success in terms of uh, early rescue. Uh, many boys and girls have been... Uh, 
I won't say many, small groups of girls and boys have been rescued. And this is through the networking, the vigilance system, the reporting mechanism that is happening. Uh, and uh, one of the reasons we think it's working, because it's been already well accepted. So there are governments who are willing to take this and make it, uh, spread it extensively. For example, in Jharkhand, the state uh, government has suddenly recognized that this is a good practice. So they are trying to now implement it to many other agencies. So the idea of missing people's registers, tracking, is slowly getting uh, into mainstream. Uh, and, yeah, I mean, ultimately there are people getting rescued. Uh, it will take us some more time to document that all these prevention strategies are reducing, the because we only started documenting how many people are missing. So eventually we want to see that that, the numbers which are in the missing list register will eventually slowly reduce gradually and reduce. That will be the evidence that there is impact from these prevention strategies. So uh, in the first case studies which I gave you, there are some stories of girls who have been rescued, rehabilitated with their homes, right? So we have had some success in that area also. Actually, we didn't have a good policy. Uh, only last year, that is 2012, a new legislation was passed, an act. Uh, actually, this came uh, because uh, earlier last year, uh, there was an outrage because of a girl who was raped. So they uh, changed the uh, legislation regarding to rape. But in that process, when they change the legislation to rape, they also added to anti-trafficking, which means that you can actually uh, prosecute uh, uh, agents of trafficking uh, without having to determine the motive or the reason where they were going to be trafficked. One of the problems, if you catch a trafficker, let's say, at a transit point, we, earlier they were not able to provide evidence that they were going to be trafficked for labor or for uh, sexual uh, uh, for prostitution or commercial sex. But now the law does not require that. So if you have, for example, by deception or force uh, taken a person away from their home, that is sufficient to prosecute them. So that's why in the case study which I gave you of the two girls, even though we didn't find any evidence that they were actually uh, abused sexually, uh, we were still able to prosecute and get those people into jail. In fact, the first time that uh, agents in Jharkhand were actually put into jail. So there was a huge media outcry, came into the media, uh, human rights uh, agencies got involved. And so from a co small community-based initiative, there is change also happening at that uh, level. But uh, I agree the framework in many of developing countries is not there, and that needs to be worked on. And uh, so, I mean, there are agencies like International Justice Mission uh, who are uh, working on those areas. And, uh, yeah, I think th those are important, but uh, they may not be sufficient. Have you ever opposed uh, the licensing of Yes and no. Sometimes it's difficult. Uh, I don't have much experience, but there are many agencies who are working on uh, prosecution and punishing the uh, people. Uh, there are certain laws and frameworks, uh, and there are people being uh, punished, but uh, not in huge number. The, the proportion to the extent in which it's happening is very small. Yeah. Did I answer your question? Yeah, but it's important to understand the profitability and the risk compared to alternate 
options, for example, the drug industry or uh, arms dealing or whatever it is, is ex much, much lower. So you're never going to be able to make it such a risky business that, uh, you know, people sort of... And uh, also in my presentation, I put a, you know, you need to also address the business model. But how exactly that needs to be done has to be understood uh, by people with that kind of expertise. Yes. Yeah, uh, actually I'm struggling to try to think of an example, uh, but uh, it's a thing of how to redress this uh, whole problem. Uh, I can't think of, uh, can I ask Dr. Shah, do you? redress this whole problem of, uh, I said rehabilitation. Uh, what I had in mind was something like restoration and uh, redressing it. It's also part of the uh, rehabilitation process, but it is deep, deeper counseling and uh, addressing some of the deep uh, emotional and psychological damage that has happened to some of the victims. I'd be happy to talk to you about it. Yeah, we we did a sensitization program with the police, and uh, we're doing training of. Thank you.